come build a new revolutionary financial system that's automated, that's orders of magnitude more efficient than anything that's ever existed before, right? That's awesome. That's inspiring. All right. Welcome to Generational Arbitrage. I am sitting down with two gentlemen from Floating Point Group. Floating Point is an institutional platform to trade, manage, and settle cryptocurrency assets in a faster and more secure manner. Uh, Kevin March is the co-founder. He's a loud and proud Midwesterner from the farmlands of Missouri and a, a notorious MIT dropout. Uh, before Floating Point, he had a short career in doing genetics research. And David also leads sales and partnerships for Floating Point. He's the dummy who actually graduated from MIT. He was previously <laughs> uh, at Bridgewater before that. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, I think you guys are on the front lines of kind of like a generational wealth transfer. And uh, I, I really want to dig into your company, your backgrounds, how you got there, and kind of like what you're seeing in the world of digital currency and how it how it's evolving. So, um, first off, like Kevin, I got I got to ask. I always find when when you get dropouts from really good schools, I put you in this like bucket of like Matt Damon and like Ben Affleck. <laughs> so so tell me about your background and. and I think it's a divergent quality when you d drop out of the institutional path. So tell me about that and how you, you got to where you are. So, so mine was a lot of fun because I didn't actually attend MIT. I was a student of University of Missouri and I got the awesome pleasure of researching at MIT. Um, but it was there that I dropped out um, because I met my two co-founders there. Um, and, you know, I, you know, it was, it was just like a fun, a fun little, uh, you know, Cambrian explosion of ideas that happened that summer. This was in 2017, where you know we're all sitting around wanting to find things to work on. We're like intentionally seeking out, looking for businesses to start because that's what people do in Cambridge, right? We're surrounded by all these people who had been founders, who had built awesome stuff, and of course the university really encourages that. They give students a ton of money to go, you know, play around with servers and whatever other sorts of computing costs you need, marketing costs, etc. So really just launched us into it. So we were looking for an excuse, right? It, it, it wasn't that, you know, I was just like faced with this awesome opportunity. I was like, man, you know, I'm really torn about this. No, we were, we were just itching for it. And John and Van, you know, they were, uh, you know, good students. They actually graduated, but I, I just couldn't wait. Um, so it was, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And then David, what was your path to Floating Point? Yeah, sure. And um, <clears throat> my path to Floating Point, before I get into that, um, my um, connection to Tyler actually goes back way before getting to crypto. Um, some people know Tyler as a leading thinker on macroeconomic trends, on crypto markets, but I know Tyler as the basketball superstar at Boston College. And here is a picture of Tyler in his heyday when he played at Boston College. Um, he might deny that he ever got playing time, but this is proof. He's on the court against UNC, a uh, you know national powerhouse, and that was during Boston College's heyday when they were um, you know one of the best teams in the country. I would actually go to games early to see the team warm up, and Tyler hit all his warm up shots. So great three point shooter, was always a big fan. And then when I got into crypto, I met him through this BlockWorks um, sort of connection. And um, yeah, to say I have respect for him is an understatement. So Tyler, you might think of us as Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, but you're the real superstar <laughs> in my mind. Um, yeah, I'm going to just hand this podcast over to you because that was like incredible. But now you have, now you have me embarrassed. So yeah, childhood hero here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my experience in crypto. So um, I went to MIT Business School which, uh, you know, gave me the opportunity to network with the MIT undergrads, you know, the, the real sort of MIT students. And 
that's where I met John and Kevin and Van, but uh, I didn't come full circle to working with them until after a stint at Bridgewater. That's where I went to right after business school. And uh, once I learned about what they were doing and growing and just got to know the team and the industry, uh, I was all in and I jumped from traditional finance right into Floating Point Group and I haven't looked back since. It's been an incredible experience and uh, there's sort of only uh, great opportunities ahead. So talk about the evolution. Like you, you guys are now a couple of years into this and have, you know, you're, now you're hiring, you really like hit your stride. Um, what have you seen in terms of not only like market structure, but also like running a business? Oh, okay. So I will say it, it's really interesting, right? It, which this is clearly no longer the days of, you know, all the crypto companies being your know, teams of five and 10 sleeping in the WeWork offices. Now cryptocurrency companies are, you know, competing for the best talent in the world. They're able to offer these huge luxurious salaries and, you know, compensation packages with every benefit you'd imagine. And they offer the ability to work on really, really cool stuff, right? Like it's, it's a whole different ball game now. Um, when we post jobs, you know, I think probably 75% of them are people coming from traditional finance. And the second a job posting opens, there are at least 300, 400 applicants uh, who've applied. It's insane, right? Where, you know, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll have a job uh, posting open for about two weeks and then we'll shut it down. It will spend like the next two to three months just going through all the different applicants. Um, wow. So it's, it's, it's a whole different ball game. And it wasn't like this, mm. you know, like a year ago, right? It wasn't like this two years ago for sure, right? But now, you know, we're coming off of a healthy bear market where everyone gets to see what it looks like when the traditional uh, institutions get left behind. And no one wants to be a part of that. Everyone wants to be the, on, you know, the, the side of the race that's winning. And, you know, right now it's crypto companies who are doing the innovative stuff. It's crypto companies who are building. It's crypto companies that are growing. And are you getting like resumes? Like I, I, I assume MIT kids are like really interested in this. I always use that as my gauge for you know, what the real growing industry is going to be. It's, it's, you know, it's not Boston college kids like me. It's, it's real technical <laughs> engineers. And, and I, I think it's uh it's a real sign. Like I didn't even, you didn't even tell me that before that <laughs> you get too many resumes. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it's awesome. And yeah, we, we get a lot of really, really awesome engineers where, you know, they're, they're coming to us, um, mostly because they have the chance to work in really, really engaging uh, subject matters where they get to work with a team of like-minded people who are all enjoying the fact that they're solving problems that have never been solved before. That's mm. awesome. That's like the best recruiting material I could ever imagine for engineers. So, you know, most of our most of our focus on engineering hiring right now, which that's pretty much all of our focus on hiring is right now, you know, most of our outreach comes back answered. Right. Our, our response rates on this are really high because we just let them know some of the projects they'd have a chance to work on. And most of those projects are pretty cool. It's not like, you know, go to Facebook and make the homepage load two milliseconds faster. It's like, come build a new revolutionary financial system that's automated, that's orders of magnitude more efficient than anything that's ever existed before. Right. That's awesome. That's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll just add to that. Um, from from the traditional finance perspective, um, you know, former colleagues, people I know that went on to work at Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, um, other big name institutions after business school, they're reaching out and asking how they can get into crypto. And I think there's a bunch of things driving that. I think the first is, um, you know, folks on the buy side of traditional asset management, they see the trends there. They see the fee compression. They see where the industry is going, how so much is moving to passive, to ETFs, and how there's incredible alpha opportunities in crypto. That's the first thing. And then I think the second thing, which is just as important, 
is the culture of innovation and cooperation. I mean, there's just no space like crypto where you have both um, partners and competitors working together to move this industry forward and sort of this broader mission and to do it in a way where we're constantly experimenting, we're constantly trying new things and everyone has a mandate to, to own their responsibilities and take things forward. Um, very opposite of sort of the hierarchical structures that you're used to seeing traditional finance. So it's, it's refreshing, it's fun, and there's a high upside for, it being, for being very lucrative over the long term. Yeah, to, to you know, go on along with that, can you talk about your experience at Bridgewater? Because um, I think it was, you know, we, we've commiserated over this. Um, I know it's a great place to work, and but you felt a lot of the bureaucracy, I believe, that, you know, I felt at previous large institutions, <clears throat> Franklin Templeton. And, um, <laughs> and anyway, can you talk about how different it is from there and, like, from a risk perspective, because they they really are trying to null the main thing is they're nullifying risks instead of like being risk forward. And, and one of my themes I talk about is like a real generational theme is shorting volatility versus being long volatility. And like, what was your per perception at Bridgewater from there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. First, um, I'll just say off the bat that uh, I got so much out of working at Bridgewater. Uh, you know, the depth of research, the depth of understanding with which they look at macroeconomic markets is second to none. And and learning from that approach, from that methodology was incredibly valuable. Uh, that being said, it's a big organization. And like any big organization, they are limited by um, the size, by the types of clients they serve. And that just is a trade-off in terms of how much you can innovate versus how much you sort of have to keep a giant ship moving forward at a steady pace. So moving over to crypto, um, night and day experience. Uh, so, you know, Bridgewater is thorough, methodical, that they, they optimize for deep understanding over speed. Crypto, it's an industry that moves lightning fast. There's constant experimentation. And again, that level of cooperation uh, across the board from sort of the, the co-founders of organization to new employees, from us to other players in the industry, there's there's nothing like it. So uh, I, I do think that for someone that is um, you know young and interested in innovating, or even someone that's older and wants to sort of um, be challenged intellectually in their work, there's nothing like crypto. And and Kevin, can you talk about the evolution? Like I believe when you started Floating Point, you were kind of like finding arbitrages and figuring out how to monetize them, and it became so lucrative. It was kind of like the same Sam Bankman Fried type of thing where you figured out these like massive inefficiencies in the crypto market structure and that's how it evolved, correct? Yeah, I mean, the the founding story, I, I didn't touch on this earlier, I, I really should have. The founding story is that we started off as an arbitrage hedge fund uh, in a dorm room at MIT where at first we didn't program anything and we we're trying to be good entrepreneurs where, you know, we figure out a business before, you know, investing a bunch of time and, you know, building the technology for it. So what we would do is we would take turns where, you know, two people would always be on the clock. One person would be, you know, sitting there clicking the buy button on one exchange. One person would be sitting there clicking the sell button on another to execute, you know, instantaneous, almost risk-free arbitrage. And it's like, poof, there's, you know, 2%. Poof, there's 2%. Poof, there's 2%. You do that 50 times a day and it was incredible, right? Where, you know, suddenly we're realizing that we probably made more money in this month than, you know, we'll make in a year of our, you know, post graduate school post you know post postdoc salaries as a researcher we're like holy cow right like that you know you're talking about generational opportunities we felt it right there where we saw these spreads that we were trading at the time we were trading them by hand 
and we compared them to you know what you would see in the equity markets because john had been trading the equity markets for a long time he'd worked in a prop shop he'd done all that good stuff but you know we we're comparing them and we we're like holy cow you know these are thousands of times larger opportunities than you'll find anywhere else that's going to go away uh, so we went all in and first it started off you know as the us just you know capturing those by hand and then automating it and having a nice robust system and then it, it kind of hit us for every single group that we were talking to that was setting up a trading shop you know a hedge fund uh, uh in crypto they were all experiencing the same things um and that kind of made our, our our entrepreneurial spidey senses tingle where we're like look if everyone is dealing with the complexity of trading on exchanges you know both like the actual trading of submitting orders long-running orders dealing with like the inconsistent and unreliable apis to like actually how do you hold assets on these exchanges everyone was solving those problems it really hit us up that that's where the opportunity lies um so i think like that that story of the arbitrage driving things first like yeah it's it's a huge opportunity and that's that's what managed to get us into the space in the beginning. Um, and I think, it, I think it's still there, it's being candid. Yeah, and, and to go further, now that you've kind of evolved the product, maybe you can talk about the product a little bit um, in, in several you know, different, different products you run and kind of how your customer has changed. Because I think you're really seeing, like I talk about these giant arbitrages between you know, $17 trillion in checking accounts getting eaten up by inflation in, in US dollars. And you're seeing some of that seep in on your side on the institutional level, because now they're the legacy, like giant pools of money are in this quandary where like, I can't get yield, right? And how, how are you, you know, positioning floating point for, for that giant kind of influx of cash, not to jinx yeah. you? <laughs> I'll, I'll let Kevin. I'll let Kevin um, talk about sort of how we're positioned to that. But I just want to sort of emphasize um, how big that problem is that you just highlighted, Tyler. Um, there's really two parts to it. One is that you can't get yield, and the other is that the bond portfolio that investors would hold, both to get yield but also to diversify the equity portfolio, does not offer its diversifying characteristics anymore. So it's not just a search for yield; it's a search for uncorrelated yield for a diversified return stream. And that's what investors are looking for all over the world. They're looking at where, you know, they have their 60, 40, 70, 30 portfolios, where to allocate that 30%. Um, and then as far as under diversified, uncorrelated return streams, crypto offers an incredible opportunity for that. And Kevin can talk about some of the uh, sort of things we're talking about with clients and how we can help to that end. Yeah, and I think um, really the, the way that we're positioning for this, the way that we're seeing it is that investors are going to want to come in and embrace the broad spectrum of things that crypto has to offer which sure you know trading on cryptocurrency exchanges and just you know running traditional strategies of long short whatever it is that, that you're running you know momentum-based strategies whatever it is like that's one part of the industry but there's so much more else that exists now right like there's staking of assets there's an incredible you know plethora of opportunities in DeFi with you know also staking assets but in a different capacity of you know uh, interacting with liquidity pools and the uniswap v3 now has a very complicated liquidity provisioning mechanism that you know sophisticated investors can earn returns on and there's governance and you know now there's this whole ecosystem involving for investors to get involved with nfts and and you know all these different things so long story short it's getting much broader it's no longer just you know going long bitcoin by trading with an otc desk or trading with exchanges and that's the future they're building for so it's, it's not that we're you know we're trying to be the one-stop shop where they can do all of those different things but we want to be the safe haven from which they can do it which like what that turns into is it turns into this this 
custody and settlement platform that we've built where we want you to be able to engage with these things safely with the amount of controls that you would have in other asset classes, right? Where, you know, if I want my my traders or my portfolio managers to go out and be able to run some sort of complicated strategy, let's say, you know, part of it is on centralized exchanges, part of it is, you know, interacting with liquidity pools on, you know, in DeFi, we should have like the same levels of controls where the portfolio manager can do that without too much friction, but without introducing, you know, a single point of failure in the the transfer of assets, right? A sophisticated investor can't just park, you know, $100 million in MetaMask and tell portfolio manager to go wild. That's not how it works, right? Because that portfolio manager could be like, hmm, you know, $100 million is enough to live a thousand lifetimes in Mexico. Why don't I just go there instead, right? Like th th that's the current state of the infrastructure. Um, so to put it succinctly, we're building a platform through which investors can safely interact with all of these different mechanisms, all from one central custodial portal, all with those same levels of controls. And we think that the breadth of that allows us to capture all of this new capital that's coming into the market that's wanting to try these new things and find opportunities before the rest of the market does, because that's the part of the market that we're in right now, right? Where mature institutional players are coming in, but they know they're the first. Right. And, and they're they're interacting with a heightened risk profile because they see the short term opportunity of that. And what types of like uh, maybe you can't answer this question, but is it like are you seeing like the big pension funds yet? Are you seeing, you know, the the savvy hedge funds or is it like, you know, family offices that are a little bit they have better mandates? Like what's what's the ecosystem kind of evolving to? Yeah, so I'll admit that it started off with almost entirely crypto native shops that had raised money, like crypto native hedge funds or asset managers that had raised money from family offices. That, that's how it started. That was 2018, mm -hmm. most of 2019. Um, nowadays, you see the whole gambit, right? Nowadays, you see pension funds. Mm -hmm. It's gotcha. crazy, wow. right? Yeah. Now, nowadays, you, nowadays, you see, you know, sophisticated asset managers, the tens of billions of assets coming in and building crypto teams, right? Where it used to be just, yeah. you know, one partner would go in and, you know, they would have a mandate to go, you know, pay tuition effectively to go learn about the investment class. Now they're building teams, right? So Amazing. it's, we've, we've started to get representation from every type of sophisticated investor that exists and oftentimes at the largest possible scale now it's just you know further penetrating those groups but now they're all represented okay so he, here here's a contra play so back in you know um 2000 you know everything busted you know people knew that the internet was something huge right do you see uh like is this like 1999 or 2000 or is everything because technology and capital is getting commoditized, right? Is this just going to turn into like kind of this parabolic advance, meaning you're not going to have the bust that everyone kind of expects in their minds. They're like, oh, this thing's going to bust or and even if they do, I guess, what's your perception on it? Like, are you, do you expect the volatility? Do you expect a crash like any of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think a few things. I think, first of all, um, I don't think this industry is going anywhere. I think there is a sort of um, process with which the bigger institutions need to go through in order to get comfortable with the space. When you think about the big banks, when you think about the sovereign wealth funds, there are so many stakeholders they need to win over. And we are talking to the champions on the inside of those organizations who are fighting those fights internally. And they're making progress. 
but it just takes time. There's investment committees, there's compliance teams, but they are all intrigued. We are talking to them, we are educating them on the space, and it's a process. So sort of the direction, even when the price has plummeted, you know, in May and whatever, um, the demand, the conversations we were having with large institutions was not slowing down at all. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is around the volatility. Uh, you know, for many active traders, especially for the FX traders, um, they see the volatility as a, a key feature, a key characteristic. They want to trade in that space. So for them, that's a huge opportunity. And then for the long-term investors, um, they have an investment horizon of 10, 20 years. So they can also handle the volatility. It's just about getting through the compliance and regulatory concerns which I'm actually quite bullish on, um, especially considering what happened last week, where there was this whole fiasco in Washington on the you know infrastructure bill. But at the end of the day, there is now rules to tax crypto. So if the government is making money off crypto, they're not gonna wanna get rid of crypto. And maybe the rules are bad, and maybe the rules need to be changed, but I think there's just some alignment of incentives right now and some clarity that this thing is here to stay, that at least from our conversations, um, has not spooked investors, has only intrigued them more, um, and, and sort of the last thought on that is there, there's just so many different entry points with which investors are getting into the space. Uh, there's market neutral strategies. There's long beta strategies. There's active alpha bets. Um, it's really a range of things we're seeing and depending on the risk reward appetite, uh, investors are getting into those things at different points. That's a really interesting point because I think you don't, you didn't have the ability back in like 99 and 2000 to really hedge. Like the idea of hedging was like not there way back then, right? Like you just retail investor, oh, this pets.com thing's really cool. But like you can you can run these market neutral strategies now in crypto, which is just like things are moving so fast, so much faster. And I don't know, I, I think I'm kind of in your camp where I don't see the big bust. Like I I can't wrap my head around it with the amount of money that's stuck here in cash backed by like central banks on like fiat steroids um so yeah well let's let's pivot a little bit to yeah. like pricing power like i came from a world like you said passive funds are zero percent to invest in the hurdle rate for public public equities is essentially zero what is your pricing structure on like your products and and kind of like commissions have they come down and are they still like juicy relatively? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, so first sort of one of our core products is our, our trading services, our trading desk, where we have the ability through our connectivity to multiple exchanges and through our proprietary algorithms to move large positions without impacting the market and with minimizing slippage. So that's one of our core offerings. And our pricing power there comes from a few points. Uh, the first is that we um, have a higher aggregate flow to the exchanges than a customer would have on their own. And any discounts that we get from that aggregate flow, we pass on directly to our customers. So we do pure agency execution and the customers see exactly what price we are executing on their behalf. We do things on exchange because we firmly believe based on our data, based on our analysis, that exchange is where you can get the best execution if you have great algorithms to do it, if you have great algorithms like we do to not get picked off by other players in the market. So that's sort of the first thing. Our, our aggregate flow passes on discounts to clients. The second thing is that we um, source exchange liquidity in a very sophisticated way. And sort of we can do a deep dive on how our algorithms work. But again, it's that core idea that we are helping these institutions move very large positions, whether it's buying into a big Bitcoin position or selling out of an, an altcoin holding that they've had for a few years. And 
you know, it could be a VC, it could be a foundation that they want to slowly exit. And we'll do that in a very careful way that won't impact the market. And then the third thing, which really can't be understated, is the minimal setup and operational cost. So both to build and maintain connectivity to exchanges takes a lot of work. The exchanges are all startups in their own right, and they're constantly updating, changing things. And our engineering team is working around the clock to maintain that connectivity to the higher standards so that if one exchange goes down, we have access to others. And on top of all that, you can do all these trading services, all this, all these features of sourcing liquidity through an ultra secure environment, through the access platform that Kevin was speaking to earlier, which is just a newer and higher level of security to exchange trading, trading in crypto. So what you guys really, this is how I think about it in my mind is back in, you know, before the public markets got electronic, right? You used to be able to call up uh, ARCA on the West Coast, buy a stock at 10 bucks, then go to the New York Stock Exchange floor and, you know, sell it at 1050, which is just this huge arbitrage between like different exchanges. You have essentially built a product that does that arbitrage and, and minimizes the execution costs for like big, big institu institutional clients, which to me is like the next level of market structure and which allows the big money to come in, right? Because before that, like it's, it's like trying to, you know, what is it? Pig, the pig is going through the Python. Now the Python's getting bigger and <laughs> you're like, okay, now we can like really facilitate some of this flow. Um, and, and then that, then the transaction costs kind of fall, but you're getting bigger and bigger pools of capital. That's sort of, is, is that fair to say? And it's not just one Python, Tyler, it's multiple Pythons to multiple exchanges <laughs> that we are sourcing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And by and, by Python, we mean connectivity and APIs, and it, we we can take this down way way too far. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we can take the analogy forever. But essentially, what you're doing is you're making the the whole ecosystem more efficient. Where back in 2017, like you really had you had to have a, your relationship with you know Coinbase and your relationship with Gemini and like figure out how to custody all that stuff, and you're like a one stop shop for all that, and insecure. Yeah, so I think the, the the I think the most important part of the example that you just brought up because I, I think you're exactly right. But the, the the example that you brought up of you know call West Coast buy a hundred, buy uh, call East Coast you know sell at one fifty you get to capture that massive arbitrage. You know we want people to be able to do that in crypto too because it's so important that these markets get a little bit more mature, get a little bit more stable. The difference mm -hmm. is in crypto. Imagine that you do that. You call your buddy on the West Coast. You buy at a hundred. You actually have to ship whatever that item is like let's say it's a stock so you have to like you know take that paper imagine you know we're back in the 70s so you have to take that paper drive it all the way to the east coast and people are trying to rob you on the way like that's where crypto is at right now right because like if you want to do that across coinbase and gemini you have to find some way to move your assets from coinbase to gemini and every single time you do that you're paying fees and you're risking 100% of your principal to, you know, technical fa failure or, you know, human errors or all sorts of things, right? So the, the stakes are a lot higher to execute that arbitrage, which is why it still exists and why it's still extremely lucrative business to be in. Um, mm -hmm. So like, that's that's a key part of the, the problem that we're targeting, which is, you know, it started off with us just focusing on the trading part of the stack of just, you know, make it easier for hedge funds to come in and set up their trading stack. And then we realized like, the other half of it is like the whole flow of funds that are impossibly complicated and risky to deal with as well. And that's kind of where we landed. 
Amazing. It's it's really cool getting this perspective because like I don't think your your regular Joe Schmo gets how how important you're building the infrastructure right, and and it really facilitates you know bigger better access. So let's let's pivot and go to um, staking right. Tell me because this is you know my layman's twenty thousand foot view, but like. When you stake, you can get a real hefty yield in crypto. So you have, if you have an influx of capital into this e ecosystem, and then you're getting paid a yield on top of it. To me, that's like the holy grail of you know investing. And can you talk about the products you offer uh, and how like that whole thing is evolving? Because I know like I think Galaxy and and bullish. And these other exchanges now they're figuring out how to offer these things that you guys kind of like offer already. Yeah, I mean, so you, you've got a really good point, which is staking offers a really creative and novel way of earning, you know, earning some sort of yield on assets that are otherwise sitting idly. That sounds awesome, right? That sounds like free money. Um, the issue is like again with staking, just like everything else in the ecosystem. It's technically complicated. It's brand new technology. Most of the stuff is is unaudited or poorly documented or a terrible mixture of both. Um, and you know there are tangible risks that you're taking in order to do these things. An example of this is like like Ethereum uh, ETH2 staking. So here are the the primary issues with it, which is when right now when you submit your Ethereum, like your 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 current Ethereum, let's call that like Ethereum one, right? When you submit mm -hmm. your Ethereum one to the beacon chain to uh, begin staking on ETH2, you're locking those assets up until ETH2 launches, which right now is somewhere between like 12 and 24 months from now. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, it could be pushed back 10 years, depending on, on how quickly this launches. Now, clearly the Ethereum community doesn't want that. And I'm sure the, the, uh, you know, the, the community of developers behind it will work very hard to make sure that there's a reasonable timeline here, but that, that timeline is variable. So it's, you're locking up your assets without any clear timeline of when you'll ever get those back. So that, that's step one. But step two is, you know, if some issue happens in your software that's enabling your staking, and it, it, it's different a little bit across each chain, so let's just stick with Ethereum for now. You know, if you're uh, staking your Ethereum, and for some reason, you know, you your software goes down and you miss uh you miss several transactions that you were supposed to give a vote on you know is this an actual transaction that deserves to be you know to pass the consensus mechanism that says like this yes this is a good transaction then you lose assets because that you're risking your principal this isn't riskless so like mm -hmm. if i'm a lazy staker and i only stake like 50 percent of the time then i'm i'm going to be losing money over time right there's there's a uh, an incentive mechanism built in to make sure that you are going to be, uh, you know, online and available. That way, there's no period in time in which the uh, the overall staking power that it takes to overthrow the network via a 51% attack to make sure that can never happen. So can I make the oh, yeah yeah go for it horrible like uh, analogy here. So so, so staking to bring it back high level for people who aren't like deep dive. Is this fair to say like hey, here's this like. 10% yield, it, I'm going to give my money to this bank, right? And they're going to pay me a 10%. It's it's probably not Bank of America or JP Morgan. It's probably like, you know, local Joe Schmo bank that, you know, it, it's a little bit risky, right? You're like, hey, I'm getting this 10% yield at, at a bank. And, and that's how my mind works is like, 
I'm giving my money to this bank. They're paying me an interest rate, but with that, the risk of, of the protocol or the risk of the bank is, is how big they are, how big their balance sheet is. Similar, is that a similar analogy? Is that fair? I, I think so, right? Where perhaps like the comfortability that you would get from like the size of the balance sheet in banking terms is like the comfortability that you'd get with like the maturity of the technology in crypto world. Um, but like, yeah. I think it's reasonably same. And you know that there's something happening with those assets that can actually produce that yield. You know, in the banking world, you know, they're lending those assets out, they're investing them, they're doing something. In the crypto world, you're providing a service to the community, right? It, but it's still a similar concept of I'm locking up assets, they're doing something as they're sitting there idly, and I get paid, you know, a healthy 10% in Ethereum in this case for doing so. And that, that sounds pretty awesome to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with, with the upside of uh, growth too. It's like, absolutely. Where, where can you get that? Um, and, and so what are the, the, the cool projects that you guys can stake? Like you have you know, three or four, right? Yeah. I mean, can so, you get into yeah, so I, I can get into those. Um, so ETH2 has been a big project for us and that, that's about to go live. Super excited about that. Uh, you'll see the press releases and all, all the normal fanfare that we like to do for our new stuff. Um, mm -hmm. separately from that, you know, we, we were one of the first groups to support Blockstack, which Blockstack is fun for those of you who are not aware. Um, Blockstack is a protocol that has been built upon Bitcoin. So it, you know, it's a separate layer one blockchain, but it links its consensus me mechanism back to the underlying Bitcoin blockchain, which is cool because, you know, this separate blockchain Blockstack, it can do interesting things with smart contracts that you don't ordinarily have easily accessible on Bitcoin, but it's still powered by like the security mechanism within Bitcoin, right? The, the consensus of all of those miners across the world mining. Um, so we're supporting that as, uh, that particular blockchain for staking. And it's cool because you can lock up their native token, STX. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, risk that you're taking in locking up STX. It's volatile, it moves around, just like most cryptocurrencies do. But you actually get paid back in Bitcoin, which is really mm -hmm. cool. So you can lock up your assets for any multiple of two weeks, you know, so like, you know, two weeks to like 24 weeks effectively. Um, and you get paid back in Bitcoin in real time uh, for your assets at work. That one's actually pretty cool because, you know, I would much rather earn Bitcoin, uh, you know, for my staking rewards than really anything else, including, you know, US dollars. Um, yeah. We also support, we, we also support, uh, you know, inflationary tokens like Algorand, which they call it staking, but really everyone proportionally gets the same amount of assets. So it's more like an inflationary mechanism where it's like, as long as you're alive and breathing, then, you know, your assets in your Algorand wallet will, will continuously accrue with like the standard uh, uh, mechanism they have across the board. Um, and then we have, a couple more that I can't talk about yet, but coming soon. Gotcha. I'll, I'll uh, I won't poke too hard. So, so essentially, where my, where my mind goes, being a macro guy, is you have uh, these these giant yields on, on these projects, right? As long as liquidity is coming into the macro market from the Fed, central banks, the balance sheets are growing, fiscal is, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Like eleven trillion dollars in fiscal. We have an $8 trillion balance sheet on the Fed. Like some of that money in a world of financial repression where you have negative real rates, to me, my brain is like, oh my God, like here you have this Bitcoin thing that's becoming pristine collateral. It's, it's now the credit markets are now financing Bitcoin, you know, Michael Saylor's, you know, big, uh, high yield issuance. So that is like a reserve asset now with a finite supply 
and here you over here you have you know almost 20 trillion of you know money that just poof you know exploded <laughs> so what does what's your advice to uh the millennials and gen zers and kind of where would you put your money uh in this next 10 20 years uh, of financial markets yeah and you can disagree with me too don't worry <laughs> yeah yeah, sure. Um, no, that's that's a really good question, and I think um, I think there is something to that. I think um, you know, still to be determined on how Bitcoin really performs as sort of a hedge against all these concerns. Um, there's still a lot of risk in it, but I think that more and more institutions are looking at it with the way that you're looking at it, Tyler. Um, some might look at it as you know, sort of more of a, a risk on versus risk off approach, but but I think there's debate on that. But if I'm a young person, I, I think you want to start with. Um, a diversified portfolio of return streams that you can expect positive return from, right? So that immediately is going to take out um, bonds that, you know, are negative yielding. It's going to take out a lot of sort of assets that, you know, traditionally were, were good hedges, but aren't anymore. Uh, I think you still want to hold some equities because in this type of environment where money is being printed at this rate, a lot of that does flow into equities. And we've seen the equities market hold up really strong. And I don't expect that to change anytime soon. But this is not investment advice, so I'll start with that disclaimer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm but, calling your lawyers right now. Yeah, yeah. But they're probably but, calling us. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so with that caveat, not investment advice, I, I think it, it's an incredible missed opportunity to not have some exposure to the crypto ecosystem. There's many ways to get that exposure. There's many ways um, for different levels of you know how much volatility you can handle. My advice would be to um, have some reasonable allocation to um, you know Bitcoin and the broader crypto ecosystem to not pay too much attention to the volatility, hopefully to lose your password and find it 10 years from now. Um, yeah. I actually talked to someone at, um, at Fidelity who said that the best performing personal accounts were from those people that actually lost their passwords and um, they couldn't <laughs> access it for a decade. So um, that's incredible. Yeah, don't don't try to day trade unless you're an expert and it's your job and and just hold some allocation, whether it's five, 10, 20 percent. Um, you know, I, I would do a mix of Bitcoin, Ethereum and some other um, altcoins. And uh, yeah, it's it's sort of like being long the Internet in the early 2000s. Um, if you were long the Internet, there might have been some bumps along the way. You might have had Amazon st stock and it could have plummeted. But if you just held on, forgot about your password and looked up 20 years later, you'd be very happy that you had that allocation. And I think um, it's not just the speculation in crypto, it's the way that the blockchain technology will revolutionize finance. That's the real thing you want exposure to through a diversified approach. And speaking of which, you know, you hear this line a lot. It's like volatility is, you know, uh, it's not a bug. It's, it's part of the whole, you know, alpha that you generate in the ecosystem. So to get back into like centralization versus decentralization, I, I saw through my career, all the money basically flows to, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, as the, the pricing power drops for, for those companies. What is your view on, on decentralization? Talking to your, your peers and, you know, other companies and competitors, are they seeing this just massive secular growth too? Or is this kind of, are you, are you guys so early to it that, you know, what, what inning are we in in this? Yeah. Um, 
one thought on sort of the centralization versus decentralization. Um, well, I think there is this big movement of decentralization. And I think it, it is happening and will matter. Um, at the same time, there is somewhat of a centralization of the largest pools of capital. The big pension funds, the big sovereign wealth funds are only getting bigger. And their big obstacle is how to allocate the huge pools that they're overseeing. So when they can write a multi-billion dollar check to any of these big asset managers, it, it's sort of the minimum amount that they need to allocate to make sense to do. So I, I don't think that centralization is going away. And I, I also think centralization as a point of trust, I think people do like to have a person or entity that they can speak to and have that relationship. So I think that's there and I don't think that's going anywhere. But at the same time, I think decentralization as a way for for younger people to get access to financial services and products that they otherwise couldn't um, for you know places all around the world that don't have the banking pipes like the US for them to get access to financial services I think that is going to be incredibly important and and both these things are going to grow in tandem so I actually think the biggest pools are only going to get bigger but the decentralization movement is going to reach new people that aren't even part of the system yet that's and a great to answer I love that <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I know See what, <laughs> to expand upon that a, a little bit as well in terms of like what we're thinking about from an organizational standpoint and what you know some more competitors and colleagues are thinking about is just there's a lot of robustness that you can have both technically and organizationally through decentralization right um organizations go through this this awful awful experience by scaling in which you know every single person that you hire um, no matter how fantastic they are, no matter how fantastic your team is, every single person you hire decreases the efficiency of everyone else on the team by some small factor, right? Uh, I, I call this the chaos factor. I don't know if anyone's ever called that before, if I'm stealing someone else's thing, but you can say I coined it. Uh, I call okay. this the chaos factor, um, okay. where every single person that you add, just, it adds to the chaos a little bit. It makes the entropy a little bit harder to manage. Um, so from an organizational perspective, it's very attractive to think about building a decentralized organization. That's something we're actively thinking about. And, you know, many of our peers, uh, you know, other crypto startups who have started to, uh, you know, to to hit the growth cycle where they're starting to face the scaling issues. Everyone's thinking about it. And I think um, a lot of people as unpopular of an organization as Uber is, um, I think a lot of people go back to the, the scaling model that Uber took, which is they were kind of pseudo decentralized where they would go state by state region by region instead of a small team of like four or five people who would own that region where of course they would all use the same tech stack but they would operate almost as an autonomous little uh organization within an organization that's really exciting to think about uh from the perspective of a business owner which is how can we decentralize the knowledge and decentralize the decision-making power to make a more powerful organization. And right now we're just thinking about this in the most basic ways of, you know, organization building, but there are interesting ways to think about how to include this in, you know, actually the technical toolkit that we have now, thanks to blockchain, such as DAOs, right? Um, such as using governance tokens to, to make decisions. All that's super interesting. And we're really early in the game for that to actually be useful. Um, but that's coming. And, you know, a lot of people are thinking about it. But the other side of it, um, you know, thinking about this from a technical perspective, centralized financial systems are not robust. And it's very difficult when they get to scale to make them robust. A really fantastic part of the decentralization pitch for us is how can you make systems that are, you know, transparent and simple enough such that they can scale to billions and trillions of dollars of volume and still operate like they would at every part of the scale. 
Now, right now, we're seeing Ethereum go through the difficulties of transaction fees when you're trying to take that model. But the nice thing is that Ethereum has scaled pretty beautifully other than the, the, the actual physical cost of using it, right? Um, and it's beautiful because everything works transparently. You know exactly why it's not working, which is a fantastic thing to have as opposed to working with like decentralized exchanges, for example, in which, you know, the inner workings are dependent upon, you know, them being uh, honorable and truthful and, you know, responsible members of the community. But again, you never actually know why things aren't working. That, that's why the, the the whole the whole concept of decentralization of organizations, both technically and, and just from from you know a human building perspective, it's super fascinating. Every, everyone's talked about it. I, I think it'll be a very long time before we get there, but I I think undoubtedly all these crypto companies that are building, um, I think they realize the um, the disagreement between their values, uh, you know, as a company and the way they're building their company. I think a lot of people are working to ameliorate that, including us. Super interesting. Well, guys, that was an awesome conversation. Uh, really appreciate it. And, you know, let's come back in a year and check in to see uh, how, how the ecosystem has evolved and if your predictions ring true. Thank you, Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having us. And I just want to give a quick shout out to, um, to uh, BlockWorks, who's having the Digital Asset Summit next month. Um, you didn't get a seat. I'm wearing a floating point <laughs> shirt, so I'm putting the camera wow. right here. We will be giving these away. We will be giving these away at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit. They don't just look good; they're very comfortable. So, attend the conference, get one of these shirts. See you there. I love it. It looks better than this one. Is it? <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. That, that's pretty cool. I'll trade shirts with you, honestly. We can I was trying to represent your Boston roots, man. Yeah, I like that. We can trade. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll catch you soon. Thanks again. Thanks, Tyler. See ya.